Section 19 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 19. And, as the qualities which Swann supposed to be an intrinsic part of the Verdurin character, were no more really than their superficial reflection of the pleasure which had been enjoyed in their society by his love for Odette, those qualities became more serious, more profound, more vital, as that pleasure increased. Since Madame Verdurin gave Swann now and then, what alone could constitute his happiness, since, on an evening, when he felt anxious because Odette had talked rather more to one of the party than to another, and, in a spasm of irritation, would not take the initiative by asking her whether she was coming home, Madame Verdurin brought peace and joy to his troubled spirit, by the spontaneous exclamation, Odette, you'll see Monsieur Swann home, won't you? Since, when the summer holidays came, and after he had asked himself uneasily whether Odette might not leave Paris without him, whether he would still be able to see her every day, Madame Verdurin was going to invite them both to spend the summer with her, in the country. Swann, unconsciously allowing gratitude and self-interest to filter into his intelligence and to influence his ideas, went so far as to proclaim that Madame Verdurin was a great and noble soul. Should any of his old fellow pupils in the Louvre school of painting speak to him of some rare or eminent artist, I'd a hundred times rather, he would reply, have the Verdurins. And, with a solemnity of diction, which was new in him, they are magnanimous creatures, and magnanimity is, after all, the one thing that matters, the one thing that gives us distinction here on earth. Look you, there are only two classes of men, the magnanimous, and the rest, and I have reached an age when one has to take sides, to decide once and for all whom one is going to like and dislike, to stick to the people one likes, and to make up for the time one has wasted with the others, never to leave them again as long as one lives. Very well, he went on, with the slight emotion which a man feels when, even without being fully aware of what he is doing, he says something, not because it is true, but because he enjoys saying it, and listens to his own voice uttering the words as though they came from someone else. The die is now cast. I have elected to love none but magnanimous souls, and to live only in an atmosphere of magnanimity. You ask me whether Madame Verdurin is really intelligent, 
I can assure you that she has given me proofs of a nobility of heart, of a loftiness of soul, to which no one could possibly attain, how could they, without a corresponding loftiness of mind. Without question, she has a profound understanding of art, but it is not, perhaps, in that that she is most admirable. Every little action, ingeniously, exquisitely kind, which she has performed for my sake, every friendly attention, simple little things, quite domestic and yet quite sublime, reveal a more profound comprehension of existence than all your textbooks of philosophy. He might have reminded himself all the same that there were various old friends of his family who were just as simple as the Verdurins, companions of his early days who were just as fond of art, that he knew other great-hearted creatures, and that, nevertheless, since he had cast his vote in favour of simplicity, the arts, and magnanimity, he had entirely ceased to see them. But these people did not know Odette, and, if they had known her, would never have thought of introducing her to him. And so there was probably not, in the whole of the Verdurin circle, a single one of the faithful who loved them, or believed that he loved them as dearly as did Swann. And yet, when M. Verdurin said that he was not satisfied with Swann, he had not only expressed his own sentiments, he had unwittingly discovered his wife's. Doubtless, Swann had too particular an affection for Odette, as to which he had failed to take Madame Verdurin daily into his confidence. Doubtless, the very discretion with which he availed himself of the Verdurin's hospitality, refraining, often, from coming to dine with them for a reason which they never suspected, and in place of which they saw only an anxiety on his part not to have to decline an invitation to the house of some bore or other. Doubtless, also, and despite all the precautions which he had taken to keep it from them, the gradual discovery which they were making of his brilliant position in society, doubtless all these things contributed to their general annoyance with Swann. But the real, the fundamental reason was quite different. What had happened was that they had at once discovered in him a locked door, a reserved impenetrable chamber in which he still professed silently to himself that the princess de sagan was not grotesque and that cottard's jokes were not amusing in a word and for all that he never once abandoned his friendly attitude towards them all or revolted from their dogmas they had discovered an impossibility of imposing those dogmas upon him of entirely converting him to their faith, the like of which they had never come across in any one before. They would have forgiven his going to the houses of 
bores, to whom, as it happened, in his heart of hearts, he infinitely preferred the Verdurins and all their little nucleus, had he consented to set a good example by openly renouncing those bores in the presence of the faithful. But that was an abjuration which, as they well knew, they were powerless to extort. What a difference was there in a newcomer whom Odette had asked them to invite, although she herself had met him only a few times, and on whom they were building great hopes, the Comte de Forcheville. It turned out that he was nothing more nor less than the brother-in-law of Sagnette, a discovery which filled all the faithful with amazement. The manners of the old paleographer were so humble that they had always supposed him to be a class inferior socially to their own, and had never expected to learn that he came of a rich and relatively aristocratic family. Of course, Forcheville was enormously the swell, which Swann was not, or had quite ceased to be, of course, he would never dream of placing, as Swann now placed, the Verdurin circle above any other. But he lacked that natural refinement which prevented Swann from associating himself with the criticisms, too obviously false to be worth his notice, that Madame Verdurin leveled at people whom he knew. As for the vulgar and affected tirades in which the painter sometimes indulged, the bagman's pleasantries, which Cottard used to hazard, whereas Swann, who liked both men sincerely, could easily find excuses for these without having either the courage or the hypocrisy to applaud them. Forcheville, on the other hand, was on an intellectual level which permitted him to be stupefied, amazed by the invective, without in the least understanding what it was all about, and to be frankly delighted by the wit. And the very first dinner at the Verdurins at which Forcheville was present threw a glaring light upon all the differences between them, made his qualities start into prominence, and precipitated the disgrace of Swann. There was at this dinner, besides the usual party, a professor from the Sorbonne, one Brichot, who had met Monsieur and Madame Verdurin at a watering-place somewhere, and if his duties at the university and his works of scholarship had not left him with very little time to spare, would gladly have come to them more often. For he had that curiosity, that superstitious outlook on life, which, combined with a certain amount of scepticism with regard to the object of their studies, earned for men of intelligence whatever their profession, for doctors who do not believe in medicine, for schoolmasters who do not believe in Latin exercises, the reputation of having broad, brilliant, and even superior minds. He affected, when at Madame Verdurin's, to choose his illustrations 
from among the most topical subjects of the day, when he spoke of philosophy or history, principally because he regarded those sciences as no more really than a preparation for life itself, and imagined that he was seeing put into practice by the little clan what hitherto he had known only from books, and also, perhaps, because having had drilled into him as a boy, and having unconsciously preserved a feeling of reverence for certain subjects, he thought that he was casting aside the scholar's gown when he ventured to treat those subjects with a conversational license, which seemed so to him only because the folds of the gown still clung. Early in the course of the dinner, when Monsieur de Forcheville, seated on the right of Madame Verdurin, who, in the newcomer's honour, had taken great pains with her toilette, observed to her, quite original, that white dress. The doctor, who had never taken his eyes off him, so curious was he to learn the attributes of what he called a de, and was on the lookout for an opportunity of attracting his attention, so as to come into closer contact with him, caught in its flight the adjective blanche, and his eyes still glued to his plate, snapped out, Blanche, Blanche of Castile, then, without moving his head, shot a furtive glance to right and left of him, doubtful but happy on the whole, while Swann, by the painful and futile effort which he made to smile, testified that he thought the pun absurd, Forcheville had shown at once that he could appreciate its subtlety, and that he was a man of the world, by keeping within its proper limits a mirth the spontaneity of which had charmed Madame Verdurin. "'What are you to say of a scientist like that?' she asked Forcheville. "'You can't talk seriously to him for two minutes on end. Is that the sort of thing you tell them at your hospital?' she went on, turning to the doctor. "'They must have some pretty lively times there, if that's the case.' I can see that I shall have to get taken in as a patient. I think I heard the doctor speak of that wicked old humbug, Blanche of Castile, if I may so express myself. Am I not right, madame? Brichot appealed to madame Verdurin, who, swooning with merriment, her eyes tightly closed, had buried her face in her two hands, from beneath which, now and then, escaped a muffled scream. Good gracious, madam, I would not dream of shocking the reverent-minded, if there are any such around this table, sub Rosa. I recognize, moreover, that our ineffable and Athenian, oh, how infinitely Athenian, republic is capable of honouring in the person of that obscurantist old she Capet, the first of our chiefs of police. Yes, indeed, my dear host, yes, indeed, he repeated in his ringing voice, which sounded a separate note for each syllable, 
in reply to a protest by Monsieur Verdurin, the chronicle of Saint-Denis and the authenticity of its information is beyond question, leaves us no room for doubt on that point. No one could be more fitly chosen as patron by a secularizing proletariat than that mother of a saint who let him see some pretty fishy saints besides, as Suger says, and other great St. Bernards of the sort. For with her it was a case of taking just what you pleased. Who is that gentleman? Forcheville asked Madame Verdurin. He seems to speak with great authority. What do you mean to say you don't know the famous Brichot? Why, he's celebrated all over Europe. Oh, that's Brichot, is it? exclaimed Forcheville, who had not quite caught the name. You must tell me all about him, he went on, fastening a pair of goggle eyes on the celebrity. It's always interesting to meet well-known people at dinner. But, I say, you ask us to very select parties here. No dull evenings in this house, I'm sure. Well, you know what it is really, says Madame Verdurin modestly. They feel safe here. They can talk about whatever they like, and the conversation goes off like fireworks. Now, Brichot, this evening, is nothing. I've seen him, don't you know, when he's been with me, simply dazzling. You'd want to go on your knees to him. Well, with anyone else, he's not the same man. He's not in the least witty. You have to drag the words out of him. He's even boring. That's strange, remarked Forcheville, with fitting astonishment. A sort of wit like Brichot's would have been regarded as out-and-out -out stupidity by the people among whom Swann had spent his early life, for all that it is quite compatible with real intelligence, and the intelligence of the professor's vigorous and well-nourished brain might easily have been envied by many of the people in society who seemed witty enough to Swann. But these last had so thoroughly inculcated into him their likes and dislikes at least in everything that pertained to their ordinary social existence including that annex to social existence which belongs strictly speaking to the domain of intelligence namely conversation that swann could not see anything in brichot's pleasantries to him they were merely pedantic vulgar and disgustingly coarse he was shocked too being accustomed to good manners by the rude almost barrack room tone which this student in arms adopted no matter to whom he was speaking finally perhaps he had lost all patience that evening as he watched madame verdurin welcoming with such unnecessary warmth this Forcheville fellow, whom it had been Odette's unaccountable idea to bring to the house. Feeling a little awkward, with Swann there also, she had asked him on her arrival 
what do you think of my guest and he suddenly realizing for the first time that forcheville whom he had known for years could actually attract a woman and was quite a good specimen of a man had retorted beastly he had certainly no idea of being jealous of odette but did not feel quite so happy as usual and when brichot having begun to tell them the story of blanche of castile's mother who according to him had been with henry plantagenet for years before they were married tried to prompt swann to beg him to continue the story by interjecting isn't that so monsieur swann in the martial accents which one uses in order to get down to the level of an unintelligent rustic or to put the fear of god into a trooper swann cut his story short to the intense fury of their hostess by begging to be excused for taking so little interest in blanche of castile as he had something that he wished to ask the painter he it appeared had been that afternoon to an exhibition of the work of another artist also a friend of madame verdurin who had recently died and swann wished to find out from him for he valued his discrimination whether there had really been anything more in the later work than the virtuosity which had struck people so forcibly in his early exhibitions from that point of view it was extraordinary but it did not seem to me to be a form of art which you could call elevated said swann with a smile elevated to the height of an institute interrupted Qatar, raising his arms with mock solemnity the whole table burst out laughing what did i tell you said madame verdurin to forcheville it's simply impossible to be serious with him when you least expect it out he comes with a joke but she observed that swann and swann alone had not unbent for one thing he was none too well pleased with cottard for having secured a laugh at his expense in front of forcheville but the painter instead of replying in a way that might have interested swann as he would probably have done had they been alone together preferred to win the easy admiration of the rest by exercising his wit upon the talent of their dead friend i went up to one of them he began just to see how it was done i stuck my nose into it yes i don't think <laughs> impossible to say whether it was done with glue soap with sealing wax with sunshine with leaven with extra and one make twelve shouted the doctor wittingly but just too late for no one saw the point of his interruption it looks as though it were done with nothing at all resumed the painter no more chance of discovering the trick than there is in the night watch or the regents 
and it's even bigger work than either Rembrandt or Hall's ever did. It's all there, and yet, no, I'll take my oath, it isn't. Then, just as singers who have reached the highest note in their compass proceed to hum the rest of the air in falsetto, he had to be satisfied with murmuring, smiling the while, as if, after all, there had been something irresistibly amusing in the sheer beauty of the painting. It smells all right. It makes your head go round. It catches your breath. You feel ticklish all over, and not the faintest clue to how it's done. The man's a sorcerer. The thing's a conjuring trick. It's a miracle. Bursting outright into laughter. <laughs> it's dishonest. Then, stopping, solemnly raising his head, pitching his voice on a double bass note, which he struggled to bring into harmony, he concluded, and it's so loyal, except at the moment when he called it bigger than the night watch, a blasphemy which had called forth an instant protest from Madame Verdurin, who regarded the night watch as the supreme masterpiece of the universe, conjointly with the ninth and the samothrace, and at the word excrement, which had made Forcheville throw a sweeping glance around the table to see whether it was all right, before he allowed his lips to curve in a prudish and conciliatory smile, all the party, saves one, had kept their fascinated and adoring eyes fixed upon the painter. I do so love him when he goes up in the air like that, cried Madame Verdurin, the moment he had finished, enraptured that the table talk should have proved so entertaining on the very night that Forcheville was dining with them for the first time. Hello, you! She turned to her husband. What's the matter with you sitting there gaping like a great animal? You know, though, don't you? She apologized for him to the painter, that he can talk quite well when he chooses. Anybody would think it was the first time he had ever listened to you. If you had only seen him while you were speaking, he was just drinking it all in. And tomorrow he will tell us everything you said without missing a word. No, really, I'm not joking, protested the painter, enchanted by the success of his speech. You all look as if you thought I was pulling your legs, that it was just a trick. I'll take you to the show, and then you can say whether I've been exaggerating. I'll bet you anything you like. You'll come away more up in the air than I am. But, we don't suppose for a moment that you're exaggerating. We only want you to go on with your dinner, and my husband too. Give Monsieur Biche some more soul. Can't you see? His has got cold. We're not in any hurry. You're dancing around, as if the house was on fire. Wait a little. Don't serve the salad just yet. Madame Cotard, who was a shy woman and spoke but seldom, 
was not lacking, for all that, in self-assurance, when a happy inspiration put the right word in her mouth. She felt that it would be well received. The thought gave her confidence, and what she was doing was done with the object not so much of shining herself as of helping her husband on in his career. And so she did not allow the word salad, which Madame Verdurin had just uttered, to pass unchallenged. It's not a Japanese salad, is it? she whispered, turning towards Odette. And then, in her joy and confusion at the combination of neatness and daring which there had been in making so discreet and yet so unmistakable an allusion to the new and brilliantly successful play by Dumas, she broke down in a charming girlish laugh, not very loud, but so irresistible that it was some time before she could control it. Who is that lady? She seems devilish clever, said Forcheville. No, it is not. But we will have one for you if you will all come to dinner on Friday. You will think me dreadfully provincial, sir, said Madame Cotard to Swann. But do you know, I haven't been yet to see this famous Frasilon that everybody's talking about. The doctor has been, I remember now, he told me what a very great pleasure it had been to him to spend the evening with you there. And I must confess, I don't see much sense in spending money on seats for him to take me when he's seen the play already. Of course, an evening at the Théâtre Francais is never wasted, really. The acting so good there always. But we have some very nice friends. Madame Cotard would hardly ever utter a proper name, but restricted herself to some friends of ours, or one of my friends, as being more distinguished speaking in an affected tone, and with all the importance of a person who need give names only when she chooses, who often have a box, and are kind enough to take us to all the new pieces that are worth going to. And so I'm certain to see this Frasillon sooner or later, and then I shall know what to think. But I do feel such a fool about it, I must confess, for... Whenever I pay a call anywhere, I find everybody's talking, it's only natural, about that wretched Japanese salad. Really and truly, one's beginning to get just a little tired of hearing about it, she went on, seeing that Swann seemed less interested than she had hoped in so burning a topic. I must admit, though, that it's sometimes quite amusing the way they joke about it. I've got a friend now who is most original, though she's really a beautiful woman, most popular in society, goes everywhere, and she tells me that she got her cook to make one of these Japanese salads, putting in everything that young Monsieur Dumas says you're to put in, in the play. Then she asked just a few friends to come and taste it, I was not among the favoured few, I'm sorry to say, 
but she told us all about it on her next day it seems it was quite horrible she made us all laugh till we cried i don't know perhaps it was the way she told it madame cottard asked doubtfully seeing that swann still looked grave and imagining that it was perhaps because he had not been amused by Frassilon. Well, I dare say I shall be disappointed with it, after all. I don't suppose it's as good as the piece Mademoiselle de Crecy worships. Serge Panin. There's a play, if you like. So deep makes you think. But just fancy giving a receipt for a salad on the stage of the Théâtre Français. Now, Serge Panin, <laughs> but then it's like everything that comes from the pen of Monsieur Georges Ronet. It's so well written. I wonder if you know the Maître de Forges, which I've liked even better than Serge Panin. Pardon me, said Swann, with a polite irony, but I can assure you that my want of admiration is almost equally divided between those masterpieces really now that's very interesting and what don't you like about them won't you ever change your mind perhaps you think he's a little too sad well well what i always say is one should never argue about plays or novels everyone has his own way of looking at things and what may be horrible to you perhaps just what i like best she was interrupted by forcheville's addressing swann what had happened was that while madame cottard was discussing francillon forcheville had been expressing to madame verdurin his admiration for what he called the little speech of the painter your friend has such a flow of language such a memory he said to her when the painter had come to a standstill i've seldom seen anything like it he'd make a first-rate preacher by jove i wish i was like that what with him and monsieur brechot you've drawn two lucky numbers to-night though i'm not sure that simply as a speaker this one doesn't knock spots off the professor it comes more naturally with him less like reading from a book of course the way he goes on he does use some words that are a bit realistic and all that but that's quite the thing nowadays anyhow it's not often i've seen a man hold the floor as cleverly as that hold the spittoon as we used to say in the regiment where by the way we had a man he rather reminds me of you could take anything you liked i don't know what this glass say and he'd talk about it for hours no not this glass that's a silly thing to say i'm, I'm sorry but something a little bigger like the battle of waterloo or anything of that sort he'd tell you things you simply wouldn't believe why swann was in the regiment then he must have known him 
do you see much of monsieur swann asked madame verdurin oh dear no he answered and then thinking that he had made himself pleasant to swann he might find favour with odette he decided to take this opportunity of flattering him by speaking of his fashionable friends but speaking as a man of the world himself in a tone of good-natured criticism and not as though he were congratulating swann upon some undeserved good fortune isn't that so swann i never see anything of you do i but then where on earth is one to see him the creature spends all his time shut up with the la tremoilles and with the laums and all that lot the imputation would have been false at any time and was all the more so now that for at least a year swann had given up going to almost any house but the verdurins but the mere names of families whom the verdurins did not know were received by them in a reproachful silence monsieur verdurin dreading the painful expression which the mention of these bores especially when flung at her in this tactless fashion and in front of all the faithful was bound to make on his wife cast a covert glance at her instinct with anxious solicitude he saw then that in her fixed resolution to take no notice to have escaped contact altogether with the news which had just been addressed to her not merely to remain dumb but to have been deaf as well as we pretend to be when a friend who has been in the wrong attempts to slip into his conversation some excuse which we should appear to be accepting should we appear to have heard it without protesting or when someone utters the name of an enemy the very mention of whom in our presence is forbidden madame verdurin so that in her silence should have the appearance not of consent but of the unconscious silence which inanimate objects preserve had suddenly emptied her face of all life all mobility her rounded forehead was nothing now but an exquisite study in high relief which the name of those tremoilles with whom swann was always shut up had failed to penetrate her nose just perceptibly wrinkled in a frown exposed to view two dark cavities that were surely modelled from life you would have said that her half-opened lips were just about to speak it was all no more however than a wax cast a mask in plaster the sculptor's design for a monument a bust to be exhibited in the palace of industry where the public would most certainly gather in front of it and marvel to see how the sculptor in expressing the unchallengeable dignity of the verdurin as opposed to that of la tremoille or laums whose equals if not indeed their betters they were and the equals and betters of all other bores upon the face of the earth had managed to invest 
with a majesty that was almost papal, the whiteness and rigidity of his stone. But the marble at last grew animated, and let it be understood that it didn't do to be at all squeamish if one went to that house, since the woman was always tipsy, and the husband so uneducated that he called a corridor a collider. You need to pay me a lot of money before I'd let any of that lot set foot inside my house, Madame Verdurin concluded, gazing imperially down on Swann. She could scarcely have expected him to capitulate so completely as to echo the holy simplicity of the pianist's aunt, who at once exclaimed, To think of that now! What surprises me is that they can get anybody to go near them. I'm sure I should be afraid. One can't be too careful. How can people be so common as to go running after them? But he might, at least, have replied, like Forchefield, Gad, she's a duchess. There are still plenty of people who are impressed by that sort of thing, which would at least have permitted Madame Verdurin the final retort, and a lot of good may it do them. Instead of which, Swann merely smiled, in a manner which showed, quite clearly, that he could not, of course, take such an absurd suggestion seriously. Monsieur Verdurin, who was still casting furtive and intermittent glances at his wife, could see with regret, and could understand only too well, that she was now inflamed with the passion of a grand inquisitor who cannot succeed in stamping out a heresy. And so, in the hope of bringing Swann round to a retractation, for the courage of one's opinions is always a form of calculating cowardice in the eyes of the other side. He broke in. Tell us, frankly now, what you think of them yourself. We shan't repeat it to them, you may be sure. To which Swann answered, Why, I'm not in the least afraid of the Duchess, if it is of the La Tremoise that you are speaking. I can assure you that everyone likes going to see her. I don't go so far as to say that she's at all deep, he pronounced the word as if it meant something ridiculous, for his speech kept the traces of certain mental habits, which the recent change in his life, a rejuvenation illustrated by his passion for music, had inclined him temporarily to discard so that, at times, he would actually state his views with considerable warmth. But I am quite sincere when I say that she is intelligent, while her husband is positively a bookworm. They are charming people. His explanation was terribly effective. Madame Verdurin now realized that this one state of unbelief would prevent her little nucleus from ever attaining to complete unanimity, and was unable to restrain herself in her fury at the obstinacy of this wretch, 
who could not see what anguish his words were causing her, but cried aloud from the depths of her tortured heart, You may think so if you wish, but at least you need not say so to us. It all depends upon what you call intelligence, Forcheville felt that it was his turn to be brilliant. Come now, Swan, tell us what you mean by intelligence. There, cried Odette, that's one of the big things I beg him to tell me about, and he never will. Oh, but, protested Swan. Oh, but nonsense, said Odette. A water, but, asked the doctor. To you, pursued Forcheville, does intelligence mean what they call clever talk? You know, the sort of people who worm their way into society? Finish your sweet so that you can take your plate away, said Madame Verdurin sourly to Sanier, who was lost in thought and had stopped eating, and then perhaps a little ashamed of her rudeness. It doesn't matter. Take your time about it. There's no hurry. I only reminded you because of the others, you know. It keeps the servants back. There is, began Brichot, with a resonant smack upon every syllable, a rather curious definition of intelligence by that pleasing old anarchist Fenelon. Just listen to this, Madame Verdurin rallied Forcheville and the doctor. He's going to give us Fenelon's definition of intelligence. That's interesting. It's not often you get a chance of hearing that. But Brichot was keeping Fenelon's definition until Swann should have given his own. Swann remained silent, and by this fresh act of recreancy spoiled the brilliant tournament of dialectic which Madame Verdurin was rejoicing at being able to offer to Forcheville. You see, it's just the same as with me, Odette was peevish. I'm not at all sorry to see that I'm not the only one that he doesn't find quite up to his level. These de la Tremouille's, whom Madame Verdurin has exhibited to us as so little to be desired, inquired Brichot, articulating vigorously, are they, by any chance, descended from the couple whom that worthy old snob, Sévigne, said she was delighted to know, because it was so good for her peasants? True, the Marquise had another reason, which in her case probably came first, for she was a thorough journalist at heart, and always on the lookout for copy and in the journal which she used to send regularly to her daughter it was madame de la tremouille kept well informed through all her grand connections who supplied the foreign politics oh dear no i'm quite sure they aren't the same family said madame verdurin desperately sanier who ever since he had surrendered his untouched plate to the butler had been plunged once more in silent meditation, emerged, finally, 
to tell them, with a nervous laugh, a story of how he had once dined with the Duc de la Tremoille, the point of which was that the Duke did not know that Georges Saint was the pseudonym of a woman. Swann, who really liked Sonnier, felt bound to supply him with a few facts illustrative of the Duke's culture, which would prove that such ignorance on his part was literally impossible. But suddenly he stopped short. He had realized, as he was speaking, that Sonnier needed no proof, but knew already that the story was untrue, for the simple reason that he had, at that moment, invented it. The worthy man suffered acutely from the Verdurins always finding him so dull, and, as he was conscious of having been more than ordinarily morose this evening, he had made up his mind that he would succeed in being amusing at least once before the end of dinner. He surrendered so quickly, looked so wretched at the sight of his castle in ruins, and replied in so craven a tone to Swann, appealing to him not to persist in a refutation which was already superfluous. All right, all right, anyhow, even if I have made a mistake, that's not a crime, I hope, that Swann longed to be able to console him by insisting that the story was indubitably true and exquisitely funny. The doctor, who had been listening, had an idea that it was the right moment to interject, Ce nom est vero, but he was not quite certain of the words, and was afraid of being caught out. After dinner, Forcheville went up to the doctor. She can't have been at all bad-looking, Madame Verdurin. Anyhow, she's a woman you can really talk to. That's all I want. Of course, she's getting a bit broad in the beam. But Madame de Crecy, there's a little woman who knows what's what, all right. Upon my word and soul, you can see at a glance, she's got the American eye that girl has. We are speaking of Madame de Crecy, he explained as Monsieur Verdurin joined them, his pipe in his mouth. I should say that, as a specimen of the female form, I'd rather have it in my bed than a clap of thunder. The words came tumbling from Qatar, who had been for some time waiting in vain until Forcheville should pause for breath, so that he might get in his hoary old joke, a chance for which might not, he feared, come again, if the conversation should take a different turn and he produced it now with that excessive spontaneity and confidence which may often be noticed attempting to cover up the coldness and the slight flutter of emotion inseparable from a prepared recitation. Forcheville knew and saw the joke, and was thoroughly amused. As for Monsieur Verdurin, he was unsparing of his merriment, having recently discovered a way of expressing it by a symbol different from his wife's but equally simple and obvious scarcely had he begun the movement of head and shoulders of a man who was shaking with laughter 
then he would begin also to cough, as though, in laughing too violently, he had swallowed a mouthful of smoke from his pipe. And by keeping the pipe firmly in his mouth, he could prolong indefinitely the dumb show of suffocation and hilarity. So he and Madame Verdurin, who, at the other side of the room, where the painter was telling a story, was shutting her eyes preparatory to flinging her face into her hands, resembled two masts in a theatre, each representing comedy, but in a different way. Monsieur Verdurin had been wiser than he knew in not taking his pipe out of his mouth, for Cotard, having occasion to leave the room for a moment, murmured a witty euphemism which he had recently acquired, and repeated now, whenever he had to go to the place in question. I must just go and see the Duc d'Aumale for a moment. So drolly, that Monsieur Verdurin's cough began all over again. Now then, take your pipe out of your mouth. Can't you see you'll choke if you try to bottle up your laughter like that? counseled Madame Verdurin, as she came round with a tray of liquors. What a delightful man your husband is! He has the wit of a dozen, declared Forcheville to Madame Cotard. Thank you, thank you. An old soldier like me can never say no to a drink. Monsieur de Forcheville thinks Odette charming, Monsieur Verdurin told his wife. Why, do you know, she wants so much to meet you again some day at luncheon. We must arrange it, but don't on any account let Swann hear about it. He spoils everything, don't you know? I don't mean to say that you're not to come to dinner, too, of course. We hope to see you very often. Now that the warm weather's coming, we're going to have dinner out of doors whenever we can. That won't bore you, will it? A quiet little dinner, now and then, in the bois. Splendid, splendid, that will be quite delightful. Aren't you going to do any work this evening, I say? She screamed suddenly to the little pianist, seeing an opportunity for displaying, before a newcomer of Fourcheville's importance, at once her unfailing wit and her despotic power over the faithful. Monsieur de Forcheville was just going to say something dreadful about you, Madame Cotard warned her husband, as he reappeared in the room, and he, still following up the idea of Forcheville's noble birth, which had obsessed him all through dinner, began again with, I am treating a baroness just now, Baroness Putbu. Weren't there some Putbuses in the Crusades? Anyhow, they've got a lake in Pomerania that's ten times the size of the Place de la Concorde. I am treating her for dry arthritis. She's a charming woman. Madame Verdurin knows her, too, I believe, which enabled Fourcheville, a moment later, finding himself alone with Madame Cotard, to complete his favourable verdict on her husband with, 
he's an interesting man too you can see that he knows some good people gad but they get to know a lot of things those doctors do you want me to play the phrase from the sonata for monsieur swann asked the pianist what the devil's that not the sonata snake i hope shouted monsieur de forcheville hoping to create an effect but dr cotard who had never heard this pun missed the point of it and imagined that monsieur de forcheville had made a mistake he dashed in boldly to correct it no no the word isn't serpent a sonate it's serpent a sonette he explained in a tone at once zealous impatient and triumphant forcheville explained the joke to him the doctor blushed you'll admit it's not bad eh doctor oh uh, i've known it for ages End of section 19